you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Job. The book of Job in chapter 19. Job chapter 19. Brother Chris essentially stole my introduction this morning. I was going to tell you a little bit of information about myself, but like he said, my name is Jackson Watts. I'm a member of New Hope Free Will Baptist Church in Jolton, Tennessee. I felt the call of God upon my life around the age of 12 to preach his word, and I've been following that calling ever since then, and I'm interning under Brother Chris this summer uh, to learn more about denominational affairs, and so I have this opportunity to preach to you this morning. Job chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity that it is to come to you today in your house, to worship you freely, to praise your name, to think about the day and look forward to that day that we shall be with you for eternity forever. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we look into your word this morning, that we would understand it, that we would comprehend it, that you would help us to understand your word. If there is one here that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would see that you are the Redeemer and that they would come to you. For those who are saved, Lord, that they would be convicted and that they would live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have called us to. For it's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. Now, Job 19 is a passage that we could quote. It's one that we could admire the beauty of it. But unless we look at the context, we're not going to understand the power, the importance. Oftentimes, it's a passage you would see that is hung up in a living room or a kitchen or maybe one that we would post on social media. But as I said, the power is in the context that it was proclaimed in. Job is described by the unknown author of this book as a man who is perfect and upright, a man who feared God and eschewed evil. Job lived in the city of Uz and he had ten children, seven sons and three daughters. He also had tons of livestock. He was a very wealthy man. In fact, scripture records that he was the greatest of all men of the East. Job was also a very righteous man. He rose up early every single morning to offer burnt sacrifices to God and mentioned sins that he and his family may have committed. This shows us that he had a great relationship with the Lord. This is the kind of life that you and I want to live. A wonderful spouse, plenty of kids, multitudes of wealth, and a right relationship with our Creator. However, unfortunately for Job, his story is not yet over. Job's known as the book of suffering, and for good reason. In the very beginning of the book, Satan presents himself to God along with the sons of God. He tells God that the only reason that Job still worships him is because he has everything that he could ever want. He says this, and he's challenging God's assessment as God had already asked him, Have you considered my servant Job? How he is perfect and upright, a man who fears God and eschews evil. Since Satan challenged God's assessment, God gives him the, the ability to do whatever he wants to to Job aside from hurt Job physically himself. And he does. And four different messengers come to Job one by one, bearing the news that his servants had been killed, his livestock, which was their wealth in the day and age in which Job lived, had all been stolen or killed, and all of his children were dead. And Job reacts in a way that you might not think. He reacts by 
renting his mantle, shaving his head, and he falls down on the ground and says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Scripture further records that in all of this, in all of the tragedy that suddenly occurred, Job sinned not, nor did he charge God foolishly. Job was a righteous man. In addition to what already happens to Job, he gets boils all over his body from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. His wife tells him to curse God and die, and all of his friends that originally came to mourn with him forsake him. But Job remains faithful. And from chapter 3 all the way to our passage, chapter 19 and beyond, Job is conversing with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they begin to accuse him, saying that he has sinned against God, and that is why the horrible things are happening. Now the reader understands that this is not true, because we've already seen the heavenly courtroom scene where the conversation between God and Satan occurs. But as in, in response to the accusations of his friends, Job says in verse 1 of chapter 19, How long will you vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? He in chapter 19 begins to list all of the things that are happening to him, how he has no one left, and how he has barely escaped all of the things that is happening to him by the skin of his teeth. He then says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like men, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Pick up reading with me again in verse 23 of Job 19. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and in the latter day he shall stand upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. Though my reins be consumed within me. I have three things that I want to share with you from our passage this morning. And the first is found in verse 25. Job cries out that the Redeemer lives. The Redeemer lives. And to understand the importance of the Redeemer living in this context, that is the book of Job, we have to establish who that Redeemer is. It's a common theme in the Old Testament to find things about a kinsman Redeemer. Someone who has the obligation to redeem a relative in times of serious difficulty. And this is found a few different times in the Old Testament. And perhaps the most well-known example is the case of Ruth and Boaz. Some say that the Redeemer Job is speaking of is the idea of a kinsman Redeemer, a relative. But this does not seem plausible for the context of the book. Especially taking into consideration that the verses prior, Job speaks of having no one left. Some say that the Redeemer that Job is speaking of is some kind of member of the heavenly host. That Job wants to complete his case. That Job is looking for vindication. But the best interpretation is that Job is speaking prophetically here. Job knew there was a Redeemer on high, an advocate, and now we, thousands of years later, having the full revelation of God through the Scriptures, can truly know the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and that He lives. Christ came through the line of David, was born of the Virgin Mary. He was raised by Joseph the carpenter. He was teaching in the temple by the age of 12. He was, started his earthly ministry around the age of 30. And he died for the sins of the world by the age of 33 on a Friday afternoon. However, ladies and gentlemen, I don't serve a dead Jew in a Palestinian tomb. I serve a risen Savior who gloriously resurrected on the third day and appeared unto many. 
Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that He was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of me, He was seen of me also, Paul, as one born out of due time. The Redeemer lives, there is no doubt about that fact. So often, we forget that the Jesus we talk to, the Jesus we worship, the Jesus whose words are recorded sitting in the pages on our laps is the very God of the universe that became flesh, came to the earth, and died for us. Philippians 2, 5-11 puts it like this, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that name of Jesus, that the name of him of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, kind of hits on all aspects of who Jesus is. Christ is God. Christ is coming to the earth and wrapping his glory in flesh and serving, and Christ is risen and exalted. So often, we only celebrate the fact that he lives, the resurrection, on Easter. When that is the focal point on which Christianity is centered. We ought to celebrate the resurrection daily. We ought to praise God for the resurrection daily. We must never take it for granted as we so often do. And by daily, I'm by no means suggesting that it's the only thing we preach on. That we do it every Wednesday, every Sunday, every Bible study. But I mean rejoicing in the conquering of sin and death daily. Living our lives as though Jesus did truly rise from the dead being radically different from the world rather than radically similar to the world. We must live like we understood or understand that Christ rose from the dead. Paul says that the resurrection is so important that in 1 Corinthians 15 he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in Christ, he records, we have hope in this life only, we, church, are of all men most miserable. Christianity is pointless, vain. It's worthless, and ultimately it is a lie if Christ did not rise from the dead. But most of us are here this morning because we hold the common belief that Jesus did rise, that he truly did rise from the dead and conquer death, sin, and the grave. Job was lamenting in chapter 19 about the horrible things that had befallen him, and he didn't know who Jesus was. He lived millennia before then, but even in the most trying times of his life, he still cries out that my Redeemer lives. Despite his pain and suffering being much to bear, even though the accusations of his friends were tearing him apart, he could still cry out with the hope of the Redeemer. And friends, we must do the same thing. We have to make the same decision that Job does. In the hard and trying times of your life, are you going to still proclaim like Job that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, or are you going to do what his wife suggested and curse God and die? You have to choose this day whom you will serve. That is the choice, ladies and gentlemen. 
You can either stand today and choose to proclaim that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, or you can choose to reject him, to say that the Redeemer does not live. It's one or the other, it's not both and. Romans 8 says that the present sufferings, the things that we go through now, aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that glory which is going to be revealed concerns the glorious appearing of Christ. And that brings me to the second thing I want to share with you from Job 19. The second thing that I want to share with you is that the Redeemer will return. The Redeemer will return. Our passage says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He will return. No man knows the day or the hour, but we do know the nature of his return. That it's a physical return to this earth to judge the wicked, usher in the new heaven and the new earth where eternity will begin and time will end, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Not only can we celebrate the resurrection of the Redeemer and the fact that he lives, but the fact that he's going to return. John 14, 1 through 3 says, Let not your heart be troubled. This is Jesus talking. You believe in me, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus made this promise while on earth that he is going to come again, and that where he is, there we will be. Many recognize John 14 for a passage about mansions in heaven, but completely gloss over the fact that Jesus is promising to return and gather his people. We will have Jesus in front of us, physically, tangible, where we can, like Thomas, touch the holes in his hands and feel his side and fall at his feet and forever praise him for the finished work of the cross. We can praise him for wrapping his glory in flesh and taking upon the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, becoming sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, writes about spiritual gifts, and he mentions love, and he talks about how that is the most important thing to have. And then he kind of ends the chapter by saying that right now, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that is Jesus, then that which is in part shall be done away. For now, we see through a glass, darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Right now we see darkly through a glass. We're only seeing a glimpse of who Christ is because of the scriptures. But when Jesus comes, we will have him. We will have him in front of us. The word, the word made flesh in front of us. We'll see in full, face to face, we will have Jesus. And now this can mean one of two things for you. This can comfort you or this can make you very uncomfortable. And how you're living your life right now determines how you think of the return of Christ. If you're living in sin, if you're living like the world, maybe your friends at school or your co-workers at work, then you have a good reason to feel uncomfortable when you think about Christ returning to the earth. If you're living like the world, Scripture says in 1 John 2 that whoever says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
However, there is a second thing that this can mean for you. This is what it means to true followers of Christ. This is our hope. This is how Job was meaning it. All has been taken away from him. He's being tormented by his own bodies. His friends are all accusing him. His wife has said, curse God and die. And with all that he has left in him, Job cries out, knowing that all the things in this life are gone with the hope of the Redeemer. Our Savior, now risen, is going to gather you and me, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Titus 2 puts it best, and Scripture always does, and that's why I'm using it so much. It says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a peculiar people zealous for good works. Looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The return of Christ is among the most comforting things in the pages of Scripture. But there's something else that will happen around the time of Christ's return. Job mentions this. Read with me once more in Job 19, verse 26. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. We have seen that the Redeemer lives, and that he will return. But the final thing that I want to share with you is that we are awaiting redemption. We are awaiting redemption. I like how the Latin Vulgate translates this passage. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the last day I shall rise from the earth. And again, I shall be enveloped with my skin, and in my flesh shall I see my God, whom I myself shall see, and my eyes shall behold. Job says that worms will destroy his body, but still in his flesh he shall see God. Job understood that he wasn't going to be dead forever. He knew that he would get a renewed body. My sermon this morning is entitled, the Redeemer, the gospel according to Job. And the reason for that is each of my main points are a major point of the gospel message. The Redeemer lives, the Redeemer is going to return, and the Redeemer, since we have been redeemed, is going to redeem us, which means we will have eternal life. In other words, we're awaiting redemption. We're awaiting redemption. We're not going to be disembodied souls sitting on clouds playing harps in heaven for all of eternity we're not going to become angels. We're not going to get wings, but we're going to have renewed bodies. We're going to be with our physical Savior in a physical body on a physical earth forever. With Jesus, that is eternal life. Job says that he will see God for himself, that his own eyes will be the ones to behold him, though his heart faints within him. Paul writes in Romans 8 of the very same thing that Job proclaims in chapter 19. He says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul explains that this adoption is the redemption of our bodies. He says that we groan right now in our physical bodies for the future redemption of them. 
Right now, we have sickness. We can get things like the coronavirus. We get sick. We get lazy. We get tired, and eventually we die. But we groan eagerly for the day that we will get renewed bodies, where we won't be able to get things like the coronavirus. We won't get sick. We won't grow old. And ladies and gentlemen, we will not die. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Essentially saying that we know that when this earthly body dissolves and is destroyed by worms, we have a body made by God, a house that will not be made with human hands, but will be eternal in the heavens. 1 Corinthians 15 says that this corruption must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And when it does, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Death won't have a sting. The grave will no longer have a victory because we will be living again in new bodies that cannot die that Christ himself has made just for us. I bet as Job scraped the boils off with broken pieces of pottery just a few chapters prior, he was thinking about his future perfected flesh that wouldn't be diseased with boils. Job rejoiced in the futuristic things because he had present sufferings. He could rejoice in the Redeemer, his coming, and the fact that his flesh was not all there was, and we can too. We can have eternal life in a physical body with our physical Savior forever. And the most beautiful thing about these new bodies are the fashion they're made in. I know we've been in the book of Job, but please turn over with me in your Bibles, if you have a physical copy of Scripture, turn with me to the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians 3, and verse 20, it says this, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. For our conversation, verse 20, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Our future bodies will be fashioned after Jesus' glorious body from which he was resurrected in. That's the beauty of this passage. And I encourage you each to go read the end of all of the gospel accounts. And there you can see post-resurrection Jesus, his physical nature that he was resurrected in, and the things he did, corruptible to incorruptible. Mortal to immortal, vile to glorious. We have this beautiful promise of not only a spiritual redemption, but this physical redemption as well. And if you can't cry out in times of life, when all hope is lost, that the Redeemer lives, or that He's returning and you don't have the hope of eternal life in physical bodies, nail that down today. Decide to give your entire life to Christ and take up your cross this day and follow him. Decide to worship him and him alone because the things of this world are going to pass away. Your money, 
your house, your clothes, your car, all of your possessions are going to pass away. Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God lasts forever. Trust in him today. Decide to follow him and receive this eternal life. Don't lose sight of who Jesus is. He's the redeemer, the king of kings. He's the one who brought salvation to all the world, and you can know him personally. So for the next few moments, I'm going to ask that you examine yourself. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. And I want you to do just that. Put yourself in Job's shoes. You've lost all of your children, all of your money, all of your possessions, your cars. You just got word that your body is riddled with some kind of horrible disease. All of your friends are accusing you of doing things wrong, and that's why you found yourself in this situation. They forsake you. And your spouse has just told you to curse God and die. How will you respond? Would you turn away from God? Would you have Job's reaction of worshiping? Would you take the advice of your spouse and curse God and die? Would you declare that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? I'm asking you to answer that question within yourself honestly. We have hope because our Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer is going to return and we look forward to the day that the blessed promise of the redemption of our bodies will be fulfilled. I'll end with this and then we'll pray. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Father God in heaven, we love you. Lord, we trust that you have spoken to the people in this room this morning. Lord, I pray that you would just take these scattered thoughts of mine, and I pray that you would convict hearts and minds and ask people to ask themselves if they truly know you. Lord, we trust you. I pray that if there is someone in here who has not made the decision to take up their cross and follow you, they don't have the hope that we've spoken of this morning. Or maybe, Lord, they're just a backslidden Christian who needs to come home to the Father, that needs to rededicate their life to the Redeemer. Remember what you've done for them, Lord. Remember the hope that they have in Christ. I pray that they would nail that down today, Lord. Use, use these words, Lord. It's in your, your name I pray. Amen. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. And for the next few moments... I want you to truly examine yourself. As we remain in a spirit of prayer, ask yourself, am I a follower of Christ? Do I know the Redeemer? Am I rejoicing in the hope that I have as a follower of Christ? The altar is open. You can come down today. You can nail that decision down today. You can decide to trust in Him and renew your hope in the Redeemer. The altar is open.